So it is Sunday morning. It is December 10th, 2017. The message this morning is called Body Shots. We're going to continue our series in the 12th round. Uh, our first foray into the subject was in the message Ring Revelations, Calling the Round. Uh, as always, Pastor Wade delivered an insightful and powerful message. It caused us to clinch, to turn, and to mount an offensive. Do you all recognize those terms? In the clinch with Pastor Wade's message, we had to come face to face with the idea that God's will is not a present reality everywhere on earth. For instance, children are not playing with cobras. The lamb is not laying down with the wolf and uh, the... A ferocious beast of the world are not eating grass. Hebrews 2.8 taught us that at the present we don't see everything subject to Christ, but we do see Christ in the position that he's supposed to be in. We then look that truth into the eye. Haircut looks good, Charlie. We look that truth into the eye, we turned on it, and we realized that God told us in 1 Timothy 1.18 to have a strategy. To fight a winning fight. He knew that this would be the process and he told us how to engage in it. We began to mount an offensive in 2 Kings 6 and also in Amos 3-7 where we asked God to open our eyes to the true nature of the battlefield so that our strategy would be successful. I'm proud to say I feel us turning the tide in here. The next message in our 12th round series was called Spiritual Stance. During that message, my brothers and I attempted to get you to clinch with the enemy, understanding that God was not the only one with a plan for your life. Satan also had a plan for your life, and that includes being stolen from, being killed, and your godly aims destroyed. We had to look that in the eye and recognize its reality. But then we turned on it. We focused on the immutable character of God, that he is all good, that all he does is good, a faithful God who does no wrong. Furthermore, according to Isaiah 46.10, we saw that his purpose will stand and will not change, that the end of this matter is already determined. That helped us to mount an offensive. When you know you're going to win, it helps you fight. In the the interim, you may not feel like you're going to win, but we trust God's word. So as we mounted an offensive... We encourage the church to learn to take a wide spiritual stance. With scriptures like 2 Timothy 3.16, we learn that the word of God equips us for everything that comes our way. For every good work, the word of God is an offensive weapon. We encourage you to have eye-high hands. Somebody show me eye-high hands. The idea was that like Moses, Gideon, and Nehemiah, we would combine faith with action. We would see in the spirit and hit with our deeds on earth. Amen? Amen. Lastly, we exhorted you to take the center of the ring. Like an ancient Jewish warrior named Shammah, we take our stand in the middle of the field. We also stand in the center of God's throne in the same moment. We learn to impose God's will that was born in the heavens on the earth and the enemies of God. Feel it. In other words, we are learning to advance the kingdom. Is that exciting to you or would you rather play church? This month, people will dress like fat little elves. They'll gather around trees, 
pretend to celebrate Jesus' birth, which didn't occur in December, in ways that Jesus never would have had his birth celebrated. And I'm not here to comment on that at all. I'm just telling you that the war doesn't stop because Hallmark made up a holiday or we're practicing Roman syncretism. The war is raging, and I want to win it. Do you want to win? Do you want to win? Well, it's our heartfelt prayer that you're being benefited by the warrior spirit of God that is rising in this place. We're learning that the same Holy Spirit that breathed His Word onto the page will breathe vital life into your body. He is the very spirit of a warrior, and I want to win. Like each of the other messages in the 12th round series, Body Shots, which is our message this morning, will feature a clinch, a turn, and then we'll look at how to mount a successful offensive. Before we enter the clinch, I want to read to you something about body shots as they relate to the athletic arena of boxing. Is that okay with you? Is anybody mortally offended by boxing? Nobody watches it anymore since MMA came out. But when they did watch it, there was a man named Zab Judah. I remember Zab Judah very well because his father used to stand in his corner and he had a black hat with white letters that said Team Judah. For obvious reasons, that caught my attention. How many of you already want Judah to win? It was one of those singular punches that boxing fans will remain talking about for all time. Everyone will remember the night when Zab Judah's bladder exploded. It was awesome. Afterwards, Judah said it was a low blow, but it wasn't. It was just a fast, technically perfect punch tossed into the dead center of Judah's soul. For punch connoisseurs, it was a thing of beauty. Only its location might have been improved. I don't mean the head. Head shots are overrated. Body shots are the essence of great fundamental boxing, the heart of it. And a great body shot, all-time body shots, are almost always delivered to the ribs. Better yet, they're delivered to that soft little target on a man's right side, where for whatever biological or evolutionary reason, a few square inches of his liver have been left exposed. You know, this was written by a boxing commentator. But each of you can probably relate to it on some level. Punched in a way that seemed to hit the dead center of your soul. Oh man, that describes this year and so many times. The feeling that it was a low blow by a dirty opponent. Come on somebody. Or the propensity to feel as if we were insufficiently designed to endure such a punishment. Anybody been there? Now, only three or four of you are being honest because I know you. We've all been there this month, this year. Who here has at some point in your life been hit so hard by an event that it was a drag on your soul, felt like a low blow, or you had the thought that you were not strong enough to endure this carrying on? Who here does that apply to? Look around, saints. It's because we're in a fight. The very few of you that didn't raise your hand are either cowardly, which is a real possibility, asleep, or on some other planet while you sit here. I want to suggest that you dial into what's happening here. It might save your life. Amen? Somebody say amen loud enough to wake up the sleeping. There we go. 
See, we, we will rouse the dead in here, spiritually dead, and slide a mirror under that kid's nose. He might actually be out. I imagine that you, like me, like my family, have had more than one or two life-shaking events this year. They were body shots. They were meant to steal from you. They were meant to kill you. They were meant to destroy your divine purpose. It's to events like those that I want to speak today. I want to clinch with the enemy this morning so that we can ultimately turn on him and make a savage and victorious offensive against him. Anybody want to do that? Then let's make our clinch. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 2.17. We will look into the eye of the beast for a little while and I'm going to warn you it's uncomfortable. It's ugly. Sometimes you study a thing to know how to kill a thing, though. 2 Thessalonians 2, 17. One more time, who's there? But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again. But Satan stopped us. Man, when you read that, is that as sobering to you as it is to me? I feel like that verse shouldn't end there. He stopped us, kind of, for a little while. Something, anything. I want there to be another sentence that explains away the last sentence. I want there to be fine print that takes away what the bold print just said, like every other contract I've ever written. Not written. Written. Read. There we go. Like I've read. Think about these words for a minute. Feel what Paul is feeling. Engage the text in a way that the first audience did. He said, we were torn away. Torn. This implies that they were actively resisting, yet they ultimately failed to stay. Paul and his companions wanted to stay and were unable to do so. You have to ask the question, who tore them away? Our intense longing to return, he says. What kind of longing? What kind of longing? This means that the apostle and his companions had shared a godly desire, an intense shared godly desire to return. And they weren't able to. Come on now. Yeah, it got quiet in here. He said, we made every effort. The group tried everything. Certainly this implies that the group put forth considerable effort. They tried everything. We made every effort. But they couldn't make it come about. Then, how about this phrase? Again and again. The godly desire was persistent and occurred on multiple occasions with repeated attempts. But they couldn't do it. And then comes the clinching statement of all clinching statements. Satan stopped us. Not only was Paul stopped by Satan, but his companions as a group We're stopped by Satan. Not just one man. Not even just one apostle. And they were stopped. None of us know for sure exactly how Satan stopped them. 
you know, we can spend some time hypothesizing. You might posit that it's one of those things in the scripture, like, I don't know, maybe he was imprisoned. You know, the scripture mentions times Paul was in prison, but it, that doesn't mean that it mentions every time he was imprisoned. You might say it was one of those times he was flogged. The scripture mentions Paul being stretched out and flogged, but it doesn't mention every time he was flogged. I can prove it. He received 39 lashes from Jewish authorities five times. How many of those are recorded in the word? Definitely you can't get to five. Three times he was beaten with rods. How many of those were recorded in the word? Well, you certainly can't get to three. He had three shipwrecks. We know there's a shipwreck at the end of Acts. Where were the other two? Or the day of the night in the open sea. Satan was actively working against him. Satan had a plan and God had a plan and they were at war and that showed up in Paul's life through real intangible events. You'd have to reach the time of a man named Augustine to get to a place in church history where we saw every evil action as somehow a disguised move of God. Sometimes an evil action is just an evil action. Sometimes it's not God's providence at all. It's just that the devil is resisting you. It's kind of strange that we live in a time where we're taught as Christians that because of God's supreme power, which I agree that he has, that he is ultimately responsible for an evil injury that occurs to you. The scripture does not teach that. My point is that we don't know how Satan stopped him, but he clearly says that Satan was responsible for stopping him. As we clench with an autonomous, say autonomous, autonomous, rebellious and dangerous adversary, perhaps it would benefit us to see how Paul records being torn away from the Thessalonians in the Holy Writ. When you see what we do know about it, it gives you an idea perhaps how he was stopped. And from that you can draw some insight. Go to Acts 17 and verse 5. This is probably not what they're preaching in the compact center this morning. And I may not gain the largest crowd by preaching this, but the crowd that does listen to it will at least be equipped to combat the enemy instead of just making a truce with him. Or worse. Acts 17, 5. But the Jews were jealous. The context of this passage is Paul has just won converts through the bold preaching of Jesus Christ in the area of Thessalonia. But the Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters. Somebody say bad characters. Man, to be recorded in the Bible is a bad character. Wonder what their mama said about him. Just tired. Unfortunately, he had some cough syrup. You know, he's not feeling too good. What if the Bible says your, your character is bad? You know, little Johnny's just in with the wrong crowd. Well, then who is the wrong crowd? <laughs> Maybe Johnny's the wrong crowd. But the Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But they did not find them. They dragged, say dragged. dragged, get that image for a minute. They dragged Jason 
and some other brothers before the city officials shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. At what time did they send them? While we're in the clinch, I'm going to work through seven facets of this for you. Uh, You don't have to count them if you don't want. I just want you to know there's seven because I have divine reasons for liking that number. Number one, the Jewish leaders became jealous. So let me ask you, who do you think was the author of that temptation to become jealous? Wow. Young Linton jumped right out there with the right answer ahead of the whole church. Isn't it preposterous to consider that something else made them jealous? Who tempts you when you're tempted? Well, it either comes from the desires of your own flesh or from a spiritual power monopolizing the desires of your flesh. But certainly no one can say God is tempting them. He doesn't tempt and can't be tempted by evil. So where did they get the idea to become jealous? It had to come from Satan. These leaders employed some bad characters. Who do you think gave them the idea to get bad characters? And who do you think was working in the lives of those men to make them bad characters? Satan. Certainly you're not going to lay that at the feet of God, are you? The leaders and the bad characters formed a mob and started a riot. What do you think aided in that endeavor? I mean, you can't get people to mob and to riot over just anything. You usually have to appeal to some base nature, and there has to be a demonic power behind it. Four, unable to find Paul, they dragged Paul's friends before the city officials. Anybody ever been to the Department of Public Safety? Why do you think city officials would even care? I mean, the truth is, you can't tell when a city official is awake most of the time, even when they're on duty. What made them care? I would say they were satanically inspired to care. What business does a Thessalonian city official have caring about a religious dispute? Five, the crowd and the officials were in turmoil. Do you think God authored that confusion? Who authored that confusion? Who authored it? False charges seemed real at the time to those who were in power. Who do you think was ultimately behind that lie? Satan. There was a financial and a physical consequence to the spiritual warfare. Paul even calls this being torn away. So given what we've just heard, who tore him away? Satan. Man, isn't that a tough clinch? As Christians, we're uncomfortable talking about the autonomy of a rebellious power. We're uncomfortable talking about what he is capable of doing. And yet in the holy inspired word of God, the canon right here, we see that Satan was successful in tearing them out of Thessalonica. We see that Satan stopped them from returning. That's an incredible statement 
that Christians need to come face to face with. This satanic clinch was so intense that the community of God sent Paul and Silas to a different town and they did it at night. You know, these days I'm growing a little dissatisfied with much of the prevailing popular ignorance that would lay these events at God's feet. At least in this case, it seems that God is not the author of satanic jealousy. God is not the author of their bad character. God did not form this mob or this riot or these false charges. But listen to the kind of cliches that we throw around as Christians all of the time. Well, I guess God had his purpose in all this. Could you put that in perspective? His purpose in what? The rape and murder? His purpose in what? Well, God only allows what is for our good. Really. Is that clearly displayed in the Congo? Is that displayed in India? Is that displayed anywhere else? Where do you find that in the scripture? Well, God must have taken this little child because he needed another angel. These kind of statements do very little to acknowledge the real and tangible evil that exists on earth does even less to acknowledge the actual war that we are engaged in and fighting in. When big-hearted and perhaps small-minded believers look at victims of spiritual and physical violence like a raped child or a tortured Holocaust victim or the parents of a dead infant and suggest, well, it was just all part of God's plan, they're ignoring that there's another power at work on earth. They're ignoring that there's an enemy God has a plan for your life. He's come that you would have life and life to the fullest. But Satan also has a plan for your life and he's come to kill you, to steal from you, and to destroy the godly aim of your life. These plans are diametrically opposed. In the clinch, we learn to look our enemy in the eye so that you don't misappropriate things. We learn what it is to fight with a real, powerful, present evil. Sometimes things happen that are clearly evil and clearly outside of God's design. That is what rebellion is. When it comes down to it, how can we say Satan rebelled and then act as if God is responsible for everything that's happening? That doesn't make sense, does it? I hope you're as quiet as you are because you're considering a truth that you've previously not had to clinch with. In the turn, we're going to affirm that the Lord is ultimately sovereign and that he'll have his way at the restoration of all. But that does not mean that it is a mysterious part of God's plan every time someone is brutalized. That does not mean that that was God's plan. We're in a war. Let me say that again. We are in a war. And there are shots given to the body. Our God is big enough to restore you. Our God is big enough to gain glory through what you endure. And he certainly did not throw the punch that was aimed at you. That's not who he is. And it's time that we learn to acknowledge that so that we stop laying at his feet things that Satan did. Listen, I want to show you some things. I probably shouldn't, but I'm going to do it anyway. Let's start in Exodus 15 together. Are you ready to go a little deeper? I'm not going to leave this clinch right away. 
I want the clinch to be something that you feel this morning so that you will rally to make an effective offensive against him. The truth is, is spiritual violence is being perpetrated on people on this planet every day. And you have the answer if you have the courage to look at it. In Exodus 15, in verse 2, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you one of the reasons that to me the prosperity gospel is so offensive and the clown that is masquerading as the nation's largest church off of 59 is so offensive and so many of the things that happen around Christmas and Easter in churches are so offensive to me. When we bring in circus high wire acts and drop Easter eggs from airplanes and helicopters and bring in professional athletes to instruct our children. One of the reasons that that stuff is so offensive to me is it does nothing to defeat evil on the face of the earth. It does nothing to win spiritual battles. It is like being paid to watch entertainers. In Exodus 15, we find something that cannot be removed from God's character. Verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise Him. My Father's God and I will exalt Him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is His name. When the Bible says the Lord is a warrior, the Lord is His name, you have to understand that it is fundamental to God's name that He is a warrior. That characteristic is inexorably linked to Him Forever, he chose to reveal himself as a warrior. The truth is that we probably underplay as a whole his warrior nature, especially when compared with the ancient peoples that are recorded. Nearly every culture of the world understands that the world was formed out of chaos. I mean, almost every culture acknowledges that. They have various ways of dealing with it within their corrupt cultural mythology. Think about stories like the Greeks. They, they used the Titans to describe a time period when there was chaos on the earth and a superior god that they called Zeus rose. The Babylonians had Marduk battling with Tiamat in the pre-creation. The Ugardic mythologies depict Baal battling a sea monster named Yam in the pre-creation. Our Bible opens with an assumption that you understand God is at war and that that war began before you even got here. Genesis 1.28. This, this ought to go a long ways to convincing you that you were at war before you were here. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves along the ground. I have a slide for you. I want to show you what the word subdue is and read you the definition. You can pronounce this word as kabosh. It actually made it into English uh, as a borrowed word from Hebrew. When you thoroughly put something down, when you subdue it, you put the kabosh on it. If you were around Jewish communities or Yiddish communities, you would hear it more. But growing up in the uneducated South, we used it in my home. 
A verb meaning to subdue, to bring into subjection, to enslave. It means basically to overcome or to subdue someone. You can read the rest and look up every single reference. Understand that when God says you're going to need to put the kibosh on it, he's talking about something. The waters of Genesis 1-2 were not listed in the details of creation. You understand that there was no day in which God created those waters. Neither was the darkness mentioned in the detailed creation account. The Bible assumes that you understand that a battle has already taken place. Do you know why? Because every surrounding nation, when the Bible was given, believed that there was a battle that took place before the creation of the world as we know it. So the original audience already had that in their mind. And so when they hear that among the first sentences that God ever said to mankind is you're going to have to put the kibosh on it, they understood that they were a part of the victorious warrior God, the God, hear this, above all gods. The most high God had put somebody in his image on the earth to complete the battle. Come on now. There were already evil powers present when man was put here. And we were at war with them. The presence of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil prior to the fall of man is further evidence of this. You know, I could stop here. But I just want to hint at a few things as we move through this clinch. I want to show you, I already touched on the law. Let me show you the writings and the prophets Quickly, These are not even the most compelling. They were just the ones that came to me this morning. You won't have to turn to these. I'm going to put them on the screen for you. Job 38, beginning in verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? What's the time frame? Foundations of the earth. Does that make sense? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it or... On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? When the earth's foundations were being laid, there were already angels that were singing. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waters halt. Now, you may think at first that we're just personifying the sea to be poetic. I want to tell you that consistently throughout the Bible, it speaks of the ancient waters as being a force that God had to restrain. It gets even more interesting if you look at what is in those waters. Psalm 74:10. How long will the enemy mock you, O God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. But you, O God, are my king from old. You bring salvation upon the earth. It was you who split the sea open by your power. How many of you immediately go in your mind to the Exodus? Can I tell you we're not talking about the Exodus? Look at the next line. You broke the heads of the monster in the water. 
It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave him his food to the creatures of the desert. It was you who opened up the springs and streams. You who dried up the ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours and also the night. You established the sun and the moon. It was you who set the boundaries of the earth and made both summer and winter. I don't want to get too abstract for a sermon this morning. But can I tell you, we are hinting at a war before you were even here. And that is why there are waters on the planet, darkness on the planet. And then God puts man on a planet and says, subdue this thing. Put the kibosh on it. It's not just in the past. How many of you have ever read Revelation and seen a dragon with seven heads and ten horns? You wonder where that imagery comes from? Isaiah 27.1 In that day the Lord will punish with His sword His fierce and great and powerful sword, Leviathan, the gliding serpent. Leviathan, the coiling serpent. He will slay the monster of the sea. Now, you could read commentaries and we're not going to do it. And they're going to say, yeah, the Bible occasionally borrowed myths from other cultures. Can I tell you I don't believe that? The Bible is either inspired or it's not. What if the myths from other cultures were a corrupted version of something that God did and they knew it? What if you are a part of a solution to a problem on this planet? What if you were supposed to be engaged in warfare from birth because you belong to a warrior God who made this beautiful creation and put it in a peaceful state as the result of a cosmic war that he won and wears the title God above all gods? In the law, the prophets and the writings, God is explicitly at war. The introduction to the book is war. And the conclusion of the book is winning that war. You ever read Revelation and seen every tear wiped away? What comes in a letter between the introduction and the conclusion? And the body is when all the shots take place. See, we know that there was a war here before us. And we know that God will bring it to an end. But in the body of the letter, the question is, how many shots are we going to have to take? It's right. During the development of the body is where we take all of the beatings and deliver all of the beatings. I intend to deliver more than I take. Let's make our turn together. Is that all right? Did we successfully clinch today? Did I get your attention that this is not just some kind of metaphoric evil? We're not simply talking about evil personified. There is actually a personage of evil. There is a master plan to destroy you. And he is sometimes successful in his plan, which is why we must trust our God. We must rally together and we must mount an offensive. Do I have you convinced of that? Then it's time to make our turn. Let's go to Revelation 21. When you are clinching with an enemy, especially in a corner, at some point, you're going to want to get out of that position. I don't want to sit in a corner and talk about what Satan is capable of doing. I want to grab him by the shoulders, turn him, and mount an offensive against him. The way that you turn your enemy in a spiritual fight is you do it with the Word of God. In Revelation 21.3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and will be their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. Come on now. There will be no more. There will be no more. Or mourning or crying or pain. We sang a song about trading our sorrows, but have we actually traded them? No, we are making the turn when we sing that song. We are looking forward to the day when our offensive is over, but now we're in the middle of it and Christianity is full of pain. We're going to learn what to do with that today. The old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all of this. I will be his God and he will be my son. When facing spiritual and physical enemies, it helps us to know that the end is determined. It is only the intermediate or the temporary that is the problem. We know how the battle will end. The question is, will we stand in the battle with God? Like Asaph in Psalm 73, my foot would have slipped, but I entered the house of the Lord. When we're facing a problem as big as Satan, we have to turn to a solution that is bigger than our problem. Yahweh God is above all. The Most High God is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He has assured us of how this will end. Now my job is faithfulness. What's your job? Faithfulness. Turn with me to Romans 4.18. Been in a battle this year. A shot to the body of Christ is a shot to us all. When you're in a hospital, every one of us feels it. When Teresa was stricken with blindness, every one of us has felt it. And when we see that devil cast down, every one of us will rejoice. We've won in one eye and we're winning in the second, but there is still a battle ahead. Church, to deny these things or to say, oh, well... It must just be the act of a loving father is to betray the character of our father. There is an enemy and he wants to hurt us. God wants to restore us. There is an enemy. He wants to kill us. God wants us to have life. Don't confuse the idea that because God is able to take all things and make them work for your good, that he's the author of all things. Romans 4.18 Against all hope. Oh my goodness, sounds like he's on the ropes. Sounds like he's in a clinch. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. So he became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Christianity that acts like there are no problems is not Christianity at all. Christianity that refuses to name problems. They certainly can't be warriors and be in warfare. We have to face the fact that we're in a clinch with a powerful enemy. But that's not where the story ends. Look at verse 20. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. That's how you make a turn. When you're staring in the face of the enemy, you need to know what God has said is the outcome. 
You need to look at your problem and say the debt is real. The charge is real. You need to look at the sickness and say this is real. And yet, my God has made me a promise that I will trust. That is where warfare begins with an acknowledgement that there is a battle line. There is something that wants to harm you and you intend to impose God's will on it. Not Satan's will upon you. But he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Oh, Father Abraham is shaking his shepherd's staff, beginning to mount an offensive, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he has promised. When you don't have the power, who does? See, when we are fully persuaded, we're fully engaged. As long as we sit back in Christian fairy tale land, listening to paid puppets on a stage, being manipulated by dark spiritual powers, then the church sleeps while we're at war. Abraham clinched with his problem, turned on it in faithfulness. Then he mounted his offensive, and so must we. I want to show you how we're going to win. Do you want to win? Yes. I want to spend more time talking about how to win than the enemy in the clinch. Having been hit with a body shot, that seemed to land in the dead center of your soul. As a pastor, I receive more phone calls at 2 o'clock in the morning than most people. I know exactly what it's like to have a live birth and people are terrified at the results of what they're seeing and then watch God make something beautiful out of it. I know firsthand what it's like to be called into an ICU because somebody only has minutes to live. And we fought that battle and stretched it out years. I know firsthand what it is like to get hit with a body shot that seems to land on your soul. I know what it's like to feel that you've been hit with a low blow, an unfair shot from a dirty opponent. I know what it is to have the propensity to feel like you were insufficiently designed to be able to endure this. But there is a proper response. We're going to. The proper response of the Christian is that we counter to the head. I want to show you what that looks like with two male models that I picked up on the way to church. They're modeling... Holy masculinity this morning. They're not going to be in an Amber Crombie and Finch ad. But they'll be there on moving day. They're not going to make the prettiest pastor of the year award. But they'll be there to put your enemy down. See, when you get struck in the body, pastors, would you get hands eye high? One of you strike the other one in the body. You know what that does? That leaves a counter to the head possible. See, when you're struck in the body, the Christian response is counter to the face. When you're struck in a way that makes your wind go away, the proper response is counter to the head. This is the boxing response, but it is the Christian response. The proper response to a body blow is that the Christian should counter to the head. Tell me, what are we going to do? Thank you, brothers. When our adversary strikes at the body, it leaves the spiritual head unprotected. 
It is not possible to hit someone in the body without dropping your hands. And when you drop your hand to strike in the body, it leaves your face unprotected. Turn with me to Romans 12. Bless those. This is Romans 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. You mean when I'm persecuted to the body, I bless to the face? Bless and do not curse. He doesn't just tell you what to do. He tells you what you must not do. If you fail to counter to the head and you end up striking back at his body, you are violating Scripture. What is worse is you will leave your spiritual head open to liability of attack. For that reason, we counter to the head. We strike at the spirit behind the puppet and we ignore the puppet. Come on now. You need to think through that. That's better than you're acting like it is. When you're attacked by an evil man, when you're slandered, you don't find things in that man's character to slander. You strike at the one who's pulling the strings. Look at verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Body shot to body shot. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, now he's going to quote Proverbs. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. See, when you are attacked in the body, you counter to the head. When you're attacked in the body, you... In the midst of a gut-wrenching shock to the body, we counter by doing good, by being kind, by aggressively blessing and tenaciously casting down the urge to curse. Maybe in more ways than one. Or is pastor the only one that has ever let loose... A word that my daddy said was French and I've been unable to find in a French dictionary. I want to show you the validity of when shot to the body, you punch to the head. Turn with me to Genesis 3.15. Say there when there is the first book in the Bible is the third chapter. You ought to be getting there. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Which do you think came first? <laughs> it's pretty hard to strike a heel with a crushed head. It sounds very much like he struck him on the heel and the response was counter to the head. Jesus crushed the head of the enemy in response to a body shot to his heel. When Judas betrays us, we kiss. That's a shot to the head. When we are crucified, we forgive. That's a shot to the head. 
In our response, the enemy is disarmed. He's defenseless and he's about to fall. What do you do with the people that do not return evil for evil, but bless when they're cursed? There's nothing left to do to them. Their religion overtook Rome. It's spreading throughout the world. They made it as far as you. I want to show you this as a pattern in the church so that there'll be a response, something that you remember every time you feel that feeling that you're going to crumple. You shoot right back to the head, encounter to the head. Acts 8, beginning in verse 3. Say there. But Saul began to destroy the church. Is that a body shot? Destroying the church? If I had a dollar for every time somebody thought they were going to tear down this church on their way out the door. Many of them are still working at it now. We're an anvil that wears out hammers. God didn't make me to be a butter knife. He made me to be a war club. And he made you the same way. We're not going to sit here and drink tea and eat crumpets. In trying to destroy the church, there's a response to that. When you hit this body, do you know what this body is going to do? Strike at the hip. Paul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them into prison. You know, that's just a sentence. Unless it was your wife. It's just a sentence. Unless it's your teenage boy. It's just a sentence. Unless it was a shot to your body. But when it's a shot to your body, what do you do? How many times have you been tempted just to go home? Like, I just can't handle it. I'm just not going to do this today. How many times you didn't want to leave your home? How many times you just want to turn off the lights, put the pillow over your head, and wake up on some other day, some other place? You think we haven't felt that way? We buried our children too. Two this year. Look how the early church responds to this. Those who had been scattered preached the word everywhere they went. They got hit in the body so they countered to the head. When persecuted they preached. Philip went to a city in Samaria and proclaimed Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. There was great joy in that city. See, when Saul attacked the body, they went on a preaching campaign. Then they went on a healing crusade. Then they began dispatching and disposing of demons. When you're hit with a shot to the body... The Christian counters to the head. You can find this as the clear historical record. When you've been hit where you think you can't breathe, rely on the breath of God and get out there and punch to the head. Do you hear me? Revelation 11, verse 7. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them. And overpower and kill them. 
Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was also crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. Man, sometimes a body shot is so severe that it feels like you can't even breathe. The enemy is gloating. The demonic realm is rejoicing. Look at verse 11. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet. And terror struck all those who saw them. See, your father is able to breathe into you again. Let his breath enter you and counter to the head. It is a terrifying thing to your enemy when your father breathes into you. They will watch and be terrified, the scripture says. You know what the brothers standing on your left and right will do? They'll be encouraged. When I see Mario and Alicia, I am encouraged. I want to be a better man and a better pastor. When I look around and I see Sam and Regina, I want to be as strong as that 90-pound woman. When you see the breath of your father enter someone and they counter to the head, it makes you stand up and come out of the hole you were hiding in and say, I want to fight too. It reminds us that we're in a war, that our God is at war, and our brothers are fighting and we can't stay home on the day of battle. Look at verse 12. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud with their enemies look, while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, somebody say very hour. There was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. An effective counter to the head is a game changer. The enemy meant to kill you with a shot to the body, but he left his head exposed. Take advantage of the earth-shaking opportunity to preach through your despair, to love through people's defections, and to praise right through death, showing that it has no power over you. It's not as if the Stevens are immune to this. We've stood and preached while still carrying our dead children. We've buried yours and preached at funerals while we needed to bury ours. It's not as if we're immune to warfare. Had our share of gut-wrenching body punches, not just this year, for many years. In 25 years, 4 years of Christianity, I can't think of a year without serious conflict. I don't know how many times I've been sued and deposed. How many times the police have been called on our meetings. Or how many times we labor under false accusation. But I know that the right response is to counter to the head. You know, countering to the head can be kind of fun. 
Our scripture for the day was Psalm 18 in verse 40. I just want to read it to you. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight, and I destroyed my foes. But they cried for help, but there was no one to say them to the Lord, but he did not answer. I beat them as fine as the dust borne on the wind. I poured them out like mud in the streets. That's not somebody who just countered to the head once. That's somebody who's making a habit of it. He didn't just break him into 12 pieces. He broke him into as many pieces as there were dust on the wind. I want to tell you that in addition to countering to the head, as Christians, we need to practice something, something that I'm going to call ring praise. See, if your enemy sees that you're injured and he hears you sighing, won't he be emboldened? Might you risk encouraging him to come and finish you off if you lay there and whimper, letting him know he was successful? When you're hit with a gut-wrenching blow, Don't give the enemy the satisfaction of being able to measure his success. Train yourself with ring praise. Turn with me to 1 Peter 4. Look at your neighbor and say, it's about to get good. We're creeping up on an hour. It's about to get good. Ring praise. When you've been hit in the body, you counter to the head. While you're countering to the head, we're going to practice ring praise. 1 Peter 4.12 Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you were suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. The way that we react to suffering and to painful trials is that we rejoice. We practice ring praise. The impact of a terrible body shot can have such a deflating effect that it's difficult of thinking of praising because of the pain we're in. Now you know that's true, don't you? Ring praise looks at the pain and says, this is my badge of honor because I'm suffering for Christ. Ring praise is when your flesh is crushed, but the spirit of God and of glory rests on you. So you are praising. Let me say that again. The spirit of God and the spirit of glory. We need to recognize something, saints. Ring praise happens when you recognize that the pain is actually a call to praise because God and His glory await you. What is the right reaction to pain? Well, if you crumple over and show pain, you will embolden your enemy. But if you stretch out and begin to worship the living God, well, His glory sits on your shoulders and the enemy has no opportunity. That's just like countering to the head. Speaking of God and glory, let's look at the mighty apostles that went before us. Because they both had ring praise and knew how to counter to the head. There were no one-trick ponies in the first century. Acts 5.40. Say there when you're there. His speech persuaded them. 
They called the apostles in and had them ouch. I traveled through Singapore a little bit here in these last few years, and I remember the outrage worldwide because a teenager got caned. I thought it was great. I think if we caned our teenagers a little more, we would have less problems. But that's the subject of another message. We'll let Wade teach that one. (laughs) Never mind the fact that there is no litter in Singapore. There is no public graffiti. You rarely, if ever, catch somebody stealing something. Turns out that a deterrent is actually a deterrent if you enforce it publicly and immediately. But that's another sermon. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Would you say they got a shot to the body? How difficult would you find it to praise if you had just been flogged? The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. See, that's ring praise, friends. They didn't give the enemy the satisfaction of watching them whimper. They left rejoicing after being beaten because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped. Somebody say, never stop. Never stop. They never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. They got their ring praise going a little bit like saying, devil, it didn't hurt me at all. And I noticed something, devil, when you hit me in the side, you left your face wide open. So I'm not going to stop. Say, I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to stop. They kept preaching every day. They never stopped. You know what that is? That's not a counter to the face. That's a counter to the face and the face and the face and the face. Wait, let's stop and rejoice. Oh, back to the face, the face. That's somebody who likes their job. I listened to Charles Brown, our elder, preach in Natchez. Nope, Nacogdoches. Natchez. Natchez. Somewhere over there with them people. And he was preaching and he stopped and he looked out at the crowd and he said, Son, if I could beat the gospel in you, we'd fight every day. Crowd got quiet. We believed him. You can't beat the gospel in somebody, but you can certainly counter to the spiritual head that has been blinding them. And you can do it with holy savagery. You can do it in a relentless fashion that never stops. You can take it to him in prayer. Take it to him in deed. You can hunt him down just because you are merciless when it comes to the enemies of God. Oh, come on, saints. There needs to be some fire in you. To the head, to the head, to the head. Rejoice. Back to the head, to the head, to the head. Rejoice. It's like you get a little praise break. Don't stop to see whether it's doing any good. Just assume you're winning and rejoice and then get right back to countering to the head. That's a whole lot more successful than running away somewhere to heal. Has that ever worked? That's what people say who are just tired of being in the ring. Can I tell you, you can't get out of the ring. You can just choose to lose. 
Listen, these apostles like us, they had holy men that went before them. They didn't fall out of the sky in a vacuum. They learned to rejoice when they suffered. And the way that they learned to do it was they watched the men that went before them. 2 Samuel 12, beginning in verse 19. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. It is impossible for me to convey the weight of those words if you have not experienced this. For years now, I've been bearing other people's children. I thought that was hard. When you clinch with this kind of enemy, what do you think will happen if he senses that he has you down? The kind of enemy that uh, that is the last to be put down. Death. What do you think will happen? Then David got up from the ground. Why do you think he got up from the ground? Because the body shot put him there. We're not saying that the enemy has no power. We're saying that there's a response to a body shot. After he had washed, put on lotions, changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and he... Oh man, if there was ever a like a boss video that needed to be played. I can see his gangster glasses coming in. Flying from left to right on the screen. This is like a boss. The most painful event that a human being can experience. And what was David's response? He worshipped. Then he went to his own house. And at his request they served him food and ate. He was getting strong for the next battle he intended to wage upon the enemy. There is no worse pain that a parent can feel. But the combat Christian learns to reinterpret the pain as a call to praise. Ring praise. You have to learn, saints, that when you're hit, the response is counter to the head and then praise. What's the alternative? Any other action gives the enemy two victories. We learn to praise and that praise pulls us up from the ground and it makes our hands strong again and you hit him and you hit him and you hit him until you have unleashed holy fury upon the enemy. And that's where it belongs is upon the enemy. Do not waste your time asking why God would do this or that and look at your enemy and say, I know who did this. And vent your fury there in holy ways. Don't allow the enemy the opportunity to measure his success in your life. Praise the Spirit of God. Praise that glory might rest on your shoulders. When you receive a jarring body shot, we counter to the head. We practice ring praise. But the battle is actually won in our third offensive step. You better learn to press your purpose. You better learn to do what you were doing before the body shot. 
See, that tells the enemy you can't stop me. That tells the enemy you had no effect on me. That tells the enemy that he's going to get more of what he had been getting. But if you stop pressing your purpose, you have given him a reason to finish you off. Oh, saints, press your purpose. It is the unwavering resolve to continue to impose God's will on the enemy that Satan has no answer for. That Abrahamic unwavering resolve to strengthen commitment. We, the victorious church, we are the anvil that wears out hammers. The combat Christian knows that he must have the courage to carry on, to press his purpose until the prize has been obtained. If we have not yet held our hands in the victory of the resurrection, then we press our purpose. We counter to the head. We practice ring praise. And then we press that game plan forward. Philippians 3 and verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all of this or have been made perfect, but I press on. To take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do. Can I tell you Paul did more than one thing. But only one thing was important to him. But one thing I do. Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. There's a reason that you're in the ring. There's a reason that you were born. There's a reason that you were called. you got to keep on keeping on. When you've been hit, you don't stop. You don't mourn. You don't take a break. It's the time to press your purpose forward. Take a break when you've celebrated victories, not in a defeat. You will embolden your enemy. Don't you do it. Don't you back off the good that you know to do, that sin. Instead, we take the opportunity to counter to the head. We begin to get our ring praise on, and then we renew our purpose, and we impose God's will upon our enemy. Rabbi Shaul of Tarsus was a master of these concepts that we're describing. He knew how to counter to the head. His ring praise has been memorialized in doxology and committed to hymns. But his real artistry was in the arena of pressing his purpose. He was an unstoppable force that overcame the immovable object. If Satan stopped him, it was only temporary. He knew how to get up and to keep going. He knew how to get up and go up. He never stopped. He could say, I fought the good fight. Turn with me to Acts 14. I have just this and one other scripture for you as we press our purpose in Christ. Acts 14 in verse 19. Then some Jews from Antioch and Iconium won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and he went back into the city the next day. He and Barnabas left for Derby. You know, I've been to Antioch and I've been to Iconium. I've been dramatically sick in both places. Watching what Judah had to eat in Iconium made me sick. 
They're demonic strongholds to this day. Many people believe that Paul died in this passage. The thing is, is Paul's purpose didn't die in this passage. You cannot perish while your purpose is undone. It is for your purpose that you prevail. It is for your purpose that you're alive. Paul cannot die and stay dead because his purpose is not done. He had to press his purpose forward. Your resurrecting God will breathe life into you again. When a man presses his purpose, he becomes possessed by God and God's purpose. That man is unstoppable. You want to talk about Christians on the offensive? You need to know why you're in the ring. You need to have a mezuzah statement. You need to speak it to your children from the time they're old enough to talk. You need to remind your wife of it daily. A family has a purpose. You better press your purpose. In the clinch, we looked in the eye of the enemy. Then we turned because of the promises of God. In mounting your offensive, you've got to press your purpose. We do it with ring praise. We do it by countering to the head, but the purpose is the engine of the beast. It drives us because it's the reason that we exist. Revelation 3 and verse 11 is our last scripture for the day. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Do you mean there is someone trying to take it? It's not just holding on to it so you don't lose it. Someone is trying to take it from you. You better press your purpose. Him who overcomes, not he who showed up, not he who had a doctrinal statement, not he who was drugged to church by their parents or slept through the service. He who overcomes. I want you to think about that word, church, because it's supposed to describe you. He who overcomes. What does it look like to overcome? When you get hit with a body shot, you counter to the face. When you want to crumple over because of pain, it's a call to praise. Ring praise. Dance a little bit. Show off a little bit. Let him see that you are not beaten because Christ is in you. And then you press your purpose. You take him from the center of the ring wherever your God says to drive him into whatever corner he tries to hide. And you beat him as fine as the dust of the earth. He will cry for help, but God will give him none. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. There's been some talk about pillar families in this church. You have but one requirement to become a pillar. You must overcome. That's how you become a pillar. Pillars are those that overcome. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. Our purpose is a pillar in our lives. It's a pillar that we can lean on when we feel that we do not have the strength to stand. I've been hit with body shots that I didn't know how to praise through. I've been hit with body shots that I did not know how to counter. But I've never been hit with a body shot that shook me from the purpose of my life. I leaned on it. I remembered this is why I'm here and I'm in a war and the same God that brought me to this place will bring me right past it. For me, the purpose in my life is a pillar. 
And I'll tell you, our purpose makes us a pillar in the house of God. See, your purpose is a pillar for you. And because you press your purpose, you become a pillar in the house of God. A man who knows his purpose is become dangerous to the enemy. Others can lean on that pillar. You want to be a pillar family? You better press your purpose. Press your purpose until the prize that is the crown of life is given you and you become a pillar in the temple of God. Amen. We're going to close. And then it remains, what do we do? We clenched with the enemy. We saw that in the introduction to the book, there was warfare. At the conclusion of the book, the war is won, but in the intermediate, we're in a battle of body shots. Well, we're going to counter to the head of our enemy. We're going to practice praise in the middle of the ring, and the worse you're hurt, the higher the praise. And then above all else, we're going to press our purpose. So since I know that you, like me, have been hit this year, as we stand to our feet,